Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 110, Tender Bread. This episode of Craft Lit is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute. The new Golden Gate Fiber Institute will be held this winter, early 2009. Please contact them at goldengatefiberinstitute.org for more information. Hi, I'm back. I am... I feel like I have quite literally been in a complete time warp. It's great to be back at the microphone, and I am so, so intensely grateful for Don for stepping in and helping me out through what turned out to be a really, really complicated September. Uh, it still is September, and it still is complicated, but the, uh, I think, I think, I hope, the worst of it is over, and um, and things are going on. The good news, because I know uh, many of you have emailed me and asked, my son's ear seems to be galloping apace, and uh, he is certainly galloping apace, which is not so good. He's supposed to sit down and be still as a four-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, that hasn't worked so well. So we don't really know how his ear is healing. We know that he can hear more out of that side, but there's uh, dis not disposable. <laughs> Everything else in the world is disposable. What's in his ear is not. There is dissolvable packing, some kind of liquid gel pack on both sides of his eardrum. They freed up the four bones, three bones, four bones on the inside of his ear. They built him an eardrum and they have this dissolvable gel on both sides of the eardrum to protect it and keep it stable while he is a four and a half year old. At some point over the next couple of weeks, uh, because we're putting antibiotic drops into his ear every day, that gel will dissolve. And then in another week, we, he will have an audiogram done, and that will be the preliminary audiogram, and all it will tell us is, is stuff kind of working. And then in uh, three more months, he'll have a real audiogram, and that is evidently when we should know what it's going to be like for him. The thing that's interesting is we had expected that this was going to be a huge shock for him, going from no hearing on his right side to complete hearing on his right side. And luckily, because of the way this whole thing is planned out and how it progresses, that hasn't happened. He has had so much stuff in his ear, whether it's a sponge or cotton or wadding or the dissolvable gel or whatever, that the process of hearing on that side has been fairly gradual. We know that he can hear sound, but he, because we don't think the bones are free from the dissolvable stuff yet, he doesn't hear words necessarily. Sometimes he seems to, but I, I don't think it's been the enormous shock that we were afraid it might be. And he has fairly sensitive hearing on his good side, not surprisingly. So, happy news all around. Uh, we also brought my grandfather here to a uh, retirement home that specializes in cases of dementia that is about five minutes away from my house so I can go visit him all the time. I don't know if I've talked about my grandfather very much. 
uh, except to mention that he built a car when he was 11 and that the car that he built when he was 12 is still on the road. And that is true. But he is also, um, you know how people like Thomas Edison, when we talk about people being eccentrics, you know, he didn't speak when he was a child and he made gazillions of light bulbs before he made one that worked and was never diminished by that process. You know, to him, that was the process. There are people like that who are different and march to the beat of a different drummer. My grandfather would have been one of those people. Well, he was one of those people. Um, we used to call him MacGyver because I swear with enough duct tape, twine, and spit, he could build you <laughs> a car. But he's faded and uh, it's been hard to watch. And he was in a position where he really needed to get more full-time professional care. So we found this place and it is lovely. And one of the cool things about it is there are eight other guys. And those of you who have elderly parents or grandparents know that the men usually do not last as long as the women. There are eight guys at this facility. And so Monday night during football season, they put the guys in the room with the big screen TV and bring in pizza and pass out O'Doul's and let them sit and have pizza and beer. <laughs> I love this place. I'm going to go sit with them because I have a boyfriend now. His name is Frank and he's up there and he's probably, I don't know, 75 or so. And he likes me a lot. <laughs> so it's all good news. It's very happy. My grandfather is, is uh, very happy there and participating in activities and hanging out with people and chatting them up. And I got a little iPod shuffle and an attachment for it and a little JBL speaker charger system, you know, that you can just plug your iPod into. Well, this way you can plug the shuffle into the adapter into the speaker and it will charge the shuffle while it plays and he um he loves music and my grandmother just wasn't having any of it and so while she was alive she didn't bother to play any music for him she just stuck him in front of a television set well music was a passion for him um, he had speakers that were taller than i am and i'm five eight so you know it was a deal so my husband downloaded off of iTunes every piece of swing music, Benny Goodman, Frank Sinatra, um, pretty much everything up through, well, from, from marching band through big band and into early Sinatra. He downloaded all of them and he loaded them on the shuffle. And so my grandfather now has this music going 24 hours a day practically in his room and all the guys are coming down to sit and listen with him and they sit and sing. And it just makes me very happy. So that is part of the drama. That The grandfather part was last week. And prior to that, it was Aiden and University that Don was, um, was helping me stumble through. My class is very interesting this year. I am teaching rhetoric. I love my students. These kids are smart. And I have freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors because I'm teaching out of sequence. It's an English 102 class, but I'm teaching it in the fall. So these are people who had to make up the class or get the class at the last second before graduating. So I'm teaching rhetoric, which is loads of fun. And I got to teach logical fallacies legitimately, which was also a lot of fun. And now we're looking at um, scholarly versus... Um, popular articles and how to use them to make a point, which is very exciting. Um, that is my life in a nutshell. Why, you might ask, did I title this episode 
tender bread. It's because going off of something that Don said hundreds and thousands of years ago, and then sent me a link to, which was a, a book on making artisan bread. I, for some reason, oh no, I know exactly what reason it was. It was when I was in San Francisco with our own Madame Lederhosen, with Heidi, walking along in front of the Boudin Bakery and smelling the smell of the sourdough bread that they piped out. I thought, you know, I remember when my dad made bread, and he made it every week, and the house smelled spectacular. He was also making beer on the back porch, so the house always had this wonderful kind of yeasty, healthy, um, rich smell to it. It was heaven. It's a great way to grow up. And I thought, I, I actually have time now. I could conceivably make a starter and make bread. So I started looking at the Amish starter and realized, well, the Amish friendship bread starter is really making a kind of a sweet cake, somewhere between a banana bread kind of bread and a, a cake kind of bread. And I didn't really want to do that. So then I started looking into sourdough starter, which is, as you know, like having a pet because you have to feed it every day and water it and keep care of it and help it grow and thrive. And my sourdough starter has been ridiculously successful. I have no business having such a successful first starter. So I'm very happy about that. But I still was having a hard time because there's lots of contradictory information on the net when it comes to things like starter and starter breads and how to use starter and substitute starter and blah, blah, blah. And then I stumbled across a sourdough site. I think it's called Sourdough Home. And the host of the site is Mike Avery. Mike Avery like all of us who have our blogs with our tutorials and who share the information that we learn you know we are we are all all of us especially craft lit people we are extraordinarily giving with our knowledge with our time in whatever capacity we have mike avery seems to me to be the same kind of person because his website is spectacular it's easy to read I'm starting to appreciate large fonts, <laughs> and his font isn't, isn't crazy large. It's just large enough that I can read it easily, even at night when I'm tired. And, uh, and he has some self-published bread books. The nice thing about it being self-published is that it is not gooped up with a lot of, I need to make this chapter longer to make it look like I know more. He is short, sweet, to the point, very succinct. He's a lovely, easy to read writer. And his book was like five bucks for an everything you need to know to get started with sourdough. I wish I had found him first. I might not have known how good he was if I had found him first, but just the time waster aspect, I wish I'd found him first. Because I went off and I tried some of his bread. And oh my goodness, it's really good. His stuff's really good. He has lots of recipes on the website. He has more in the book. Uh, swing by if you're at all interested. And I will tell you this. <clears throat> One of the things I've learned. If you work during the day, you can set your sourdough stuff up the night before. Do stuff to it in the morning. Let it sit and rise while you're at work. And then you can form it and bake it when you get home and you can have fresh bread. It's, it is possible. It's, you know, logistically, you have to think through stuff. And I'll see if I can find, there was a link that had the logistics on it. Um, I will look for that as well and, and post it so that you can see like a timeline for if you wanted to do it yourself. It was, 
It was really good, and I was able to put fresh bread on the table for my dad's 62nd birthday, which, you know, got him all nostalgic, and it was good, and it, and it really tasted good. It really tasted good. I was so happy. So, the, uh, oh, the other thing that I learned, we've talked about, um, what is it, active bacteria, the, the lactobacillus um, stuff that's in yogurt. Is that right? Is it lactobacillus? Someone will tell me. Whatever the good stuff is that's in yogurt, that is allegedly supposed to help out with allergies. I've been eating more of it. It very well might be helping. I kind of can't tell because I got attacked by uh, upwards of 40 mosquito bites on my legs. So I had to take prednisone because at that point, smearing yogurt on my legs wasn't going to help, much less eat it. Uh, I tried. Didn't help. But sourdough bread... The yeast that's in sourdough, if you make a true sourdough starter, which means you catch wild yeast from the air, ask me how I know. Yes, I wrangled wild yeast from the air. I was so proud of myself. Anyway, evidently the the process of making a starter this way means that you have, I think, one very sturdy yeast that survives and four or five bacteria and they work in synergy. <laughs> they work in synergy with each other. The thing that I find interesting is if you were to introduce introduce regular yeast, like baker's yeast or little Fleischmann's yeast packets into the sourdough thing, if it was a healthy sourdough starter that had been firmly established, it would kill that yeast. Because that yeast, that yeast is wussy yeast. <laughs> it's fast yeast, but in a strong yeast sourdough yeast is really strong. It's also very slow moving. And so one of the reasons why sourdough bread tastes so good and why true sourdough bread doesn't go stale and moldy is because the yeast and the bacteria kick everything else's butt. Literally. So when I was up in San Francisco with Heidi, I bought a, um, a round loaf of sourdough bread at the Boudin Bakery. And I managed not to eat it in the car on the way home, which I'm really proud of myself for. We had a little bit with dinner one night after we got here, and I realized it was still sitting on the counter wrapped in its Boudin bag with um, a plastic Ziploc around it. And I thought, oh God, that thing must be 14 shades of blue by this point. And I opened it up and it was fine. This is yesterday. So it's been three weeks. I opened it up. It was good as new. It wasn't stale. It wasn't dry. It wasn't moldy and it didn't smell funny. So I did a little V for Vendetta fried egg in the middle thing. And it was spectacular. In fact, it was so good that my children ate mine and I had to make myself another. So I know that there's been lots of chatter out in the world about how, uh, well, I've eliminated yeast from my diet and I feel so much better. And that is, I know that that is absolutely factually true for a number of my friends. What I'm curious about now is, is the problem not yeast? Is the problem the kind of yeast? Because the yeast that we get in many, 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 huge percent of our store-bought breads is the fast yeast, the, the, the wimpy yeast. If you were able to get a hold of real sourdough, there are lots of stories along the same lines as the yogurt stories of actual real sourdough, real sourdough products. 
um, helping people, making uh, stomach ailments go away and making them, you know, basically healthier because whatever it is that you're eating, those five bacteria or four bacteria and the, the yeast are good bacteria, good cultures that are helping your body. I thought it was fascinating. I have rambled on too long about that and I'm going to move on. I need to thank Erin, our friend Spinning Erin, who sent me some of her um, her boy's fiber. She has, as you know, uh, alpaca <clears throat> and goats and everything. She also sent me her little moo card. I love moo cards. I love the picture on her moo card. It's noses. It's noses of her little goats. And Erin Hastings' card reads, Women's Touch Dairy, Goats, Cheese, Milk, and Yogurt, Alpaca Fiber, and Hand Spun Yarn. And you can find her at spinningerin.etsy.com. Is it Etsy or Etsy? Somebody needs to tell me. Nobody's told me. Who invented Etsy? Etsy. They need to tell me. So spinning Erin, all one word, at etsyetsy.com. <clears throat> Thank you, Erin, so much. I am actually spindle spinning this because I am feeling the need to spindle spin. It's just the way it is now. I am going to also put up a link to a site that details how to make cranberry liqueur. I am not making cranberry liqueur this year yet. I will when it comes closer to Thanksgiving, but you need to give yourself a good three, four, five week lead time to really get the liqueur steeped. Instead, I am making blueberry liqueur. And then I'm going to pour this off into bottles and seal those away for gifts. And then I'm going to do the same thing with the cranberry liqueur. All I'm saying, vanilla ice cream, cranberry liqueur. Enough said. It's spectacular. Go make it. I also wanted to share with you something that I found. Many of us know the story about Winston Churchill, that somebody made some crack to him about ending a sentence with a preposition, and he made some statement about, uh, this is something up with which I will not put, or something to that effect. It turns out uh, a professor, a Churchillian professor at Washington State University said, the saying attributed to Winston Churchill, rejecting the rule against ending a sentence with a preposition, must be among the most frequently mutated witticisms ever. I have received many notes from correspondents claiming to know what the original saying was, but none of them cites an authoritative source. The alt.english.usage.fac states that the story originated with an anecdote in Sir Ernest Graves' Plain Words in 1948. Supposedly, an editor had clumsily rearranged one of Churchill's sentences to avoid it ending in a preposition, and the Prime Minister, very proud of his style, scribbled his note in reply, This is the sort of English up with which I will not put. The English, I'm sorry, the American Heritage Bush Book of English Usage agrees. The fact goes on to say that the Oxford Companion to the English Language states that the original was, this is the sort of bloody nonsense up with which I will not put. To me, this sounds more likely, and eagerness to avoid the offensive word bloody would help to explain the proliferation of variations. However, a quick search of the internet turned up an astonishing number of variations, and here is just a sampling. This is a rule up with which I will not put. This is the kind of errant pedantry up with which I will not put. Not ending a sentence with a preposition is a bit of aidant pedantry up with which I will not put. This is the sort of nonsense up with which I will not put. This is insubordination up with which I will not put. And it goes on and on and on. So I thought I should share a little bit of lightness, levity, fun with you today in, uh, in the form of Mr. Churchill and his errant pedantry up with which he will not put. 
I love it. So, Jen Massey, one of our uh, our longtime listeners, emailed me because she had an observation, and she has had uh, kind of a, a back and forth with some people on Ravelry, and I wanted to let you know what she thought. She was listening to episode 107 and says, I was caught up in Joe and Amy discussing slash debating whether a man who is known to be a cad or not a good person, should be ignored or treated civilly. Joe snubbed the man and Amy listened to him and treated him as a gentleman, even though he wasn't considered to be a good man. Alcott also brought this line of thought up in her book, Rose in Bloom, in a fairly similar context. So she must have felt this little bit of culture and society thing very much. However, in Rose in Bloom, instead of leaving it as a debate, it was decided that such men should be snubbed by good women so that they would eventually learn that there is consequence to their actions. So now my question is, which book came first, Rosenblum or Little Women? If Little Women came first, it appears she resolved her feeling with the issue before Rosenblum came out, or vice versa. So, someone on Ravelry did the research for us, and Rosenblum came out after Little Women. Violin Knitter on Ravelry found out that, according to one website I found, Little Women was published in, from 1868 to 1869. There are different dates for the two halves of the book. Rosenblum was published in 1876. So, 68 versus 76. I thought of one other difference between the two situations. Rose is actually well off enough to make philanthropy her job for life, and therefore doesn't have the financial concerns that is one of Amy's reasons why she should be more accommodating to these men. So it could be that Louisa May Alcott was attempting to argue this point, but from a view of the upper crust versus the middle class. Also, Joe and Rose are the main characters for both books, and they both have the same opinion. So it is interesting that Louisa May Alcott used their voices to provide this argument. Anyway, that's the best I can do with this train of thought, except that I agree with Joe. In a polite society, bad behavior should not be encouraged. So, interesting. I have not read Rosenblum before, and now I am curious and am thinking about... Uh, digging that up. I actually have to teach uh, Sunny's Blues, James Baldwin's um, short story, to uh, a class that is not my own this Thursday, and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't taught any literature in person with people who can talk back to me for a while, so I am looking forward to that. For today, we have a chapter called Tender Troubles. This is the beginning of an enormous sea change in the book as far as our, our loving Joe goes. Um, today, it's a, it's a Joe Beth chapter, and uh, Marmy as well, and Joe comes to some very wrong conclusions, but makes some very good decisions, even though the... Um, her reasoning is flawed. So, not a whole lot to say before the chapter, but there will be more to say after the chapter. So, I'm just going to start the chapter for you. You know the people. You know the thing. Here we go. Little Women, Chapter 32, Tender Troubles. Joe, I'm anxious about Beth. Why, Mother, she has seemed unusually well since the babies came. It's not her health that troubles me now, it's her spirits. I'm sure there is something on her mind, and I want you to discover what it is. What makes you think so, mother? She sits alone a good deal, and doesn't talk to her father as much as she used. I found her crying over the babies the other day. When she sings, the songs are always sad ones, and now and then I see a look in her face that I don't understand, 
This isn't like Beth, and it worries me. Have you asked her about it? I have tried once or twice, but she either evaded my questions or looked so distressed that I stopped. I never force my children's confidence, and I seldom have to wait for long. Mrs. March glanced at Joe as she spoke, but the face opposite seemed quite unconscious of any secret disquietude but Beth's, and after sewing thoughtfully for a minute, Joe said, I think she is growing up, and so begins to dream dreams and have hopes and fears and fidgets, without knowing why or being able to explain them. Why, mother, Beth's eighteen, but we don't realize it, and treat her like a child, forgetting she's a woman. So she is. Dear heart, how fast you do grow up, returned her mother with a sigh and a smile. Can't be helped, Marmy, so you must resign yourself to all sorts of worries and let your birds hop out of the nest one by one. I promise never to hop very far, if that is any comfort to you. It's a great comfort, Joe. I always feel strong when you are at home, now Meg is gone. Beth is too feeble, and Amy too young to depend upon. But when the tug comes, you are always ready. Why, you know I don't mind hard jobs much, and there must always be one scrub in a family. Amy is splendid in fine works, and I'm not, but I feel in my element when all the carpets are to be taken up, or half the family fall sick at once. Amy is distinguishing herself abroad, but if anything is amiss at home, I'm your man. I leave Beth to your hands, then, for she will open her tender little heart to her Joe sooner than to anyone else. Be very kind, and don't let her think that anyone watches or talks about her. If she would only get quite strong and cheerful again, I shouldn't have a wish in the world. Happy woman, I've got heaps. My dear, what are they? I'll settle Bethy's troubles, and then I'll tell you mine. They are not very wearing, so they'll keep. And Joe stitched away with a wise nod which set her mother's heart at rest about her, for the present at least. Well, apparently absorbed in her own affairs, Joe watched Beth, and after many conflicting conjectures, finally settled upon one which seemed to explain the change in her. A slight incident gave Joe the clue to the mystery, she thought, and lively fancy loving heart did the rest. She was affecting to write busily one Saturday afternoon, when she and Beth were alone together. Yet as she scribbled, she kept her eye on her sister, who seemed unusually quiet. Sitting at the window, Beth's work often dropped into her lap, and she leaned her head upon her hand in a dejected attitude, while her eyes rested on the dull autumnal landscape. Suddenly someone passed below, whistling like an operatic blackbird, and a voice called out, "'All serene! Coming in tonight!' Beth started, leaned forward, smiled and nodded watched the passerby till his quick tramp died away, then said softly as if to herself, How strong and well and happy that dear boy looks. Hum, said Joe, still intent upon her sister's face, for the bright colour faded as quickly as it came. The smile vanished, and presently a tear lay shining on the window ledge. Beth whisked it off, and in her half-averted face read a tender sorrow that made her own eyes fill. Fearing to betray herself, she slipped away, murmuring something about needing more paper. "'Mercy on me! Beth loves Laurie!' she said, sitting down in her own room, pale with the shock of the discovery which she believed she had just made. "'I never dreamed of such a thing. What will Mother say? I wonder if her—' There Joe stopped and turned scarlet with a sudden thought. "'If he shouldn't love back again, how dreadful it would be! He must! I'll make him!' and she shook her head threateningly at the picture of the mischievous-looking boy laughing at her from the wall. "'Oh, dear, we are growing up with a vengeance. Here's Meg married and a mamma, Amy flourishing away at Paris, and Beth in love. I'm the only one that has sense enough to keep out of mischief.' 
Joe thought intently for a minute with her eyes fixed on the picture. And she smoothed out her wrinkled forehead and said, with a decided nod at the face opposite, "'No, thank you, sir. You're very charming, but you've no more stability than a weathercock. So you needn't write touching notes and smile in that insinuating way, for it won't do a bit of good, and I won't have it.' Then she sighed and fell into a reverie from which she did not wake till the early twilight sent her down to take new observations, which only confirmed her suspicion. Though Laurie flirted with Amy and joked with Joe, his manner to Beth had always been peculiarly kind and gentle, but so was everybody's. Therefore no one thought of imagining that he cared more for her than for the others. Indeed, a general impression had prevailed in the family of late that our boy was getting fonder than ever of Joe, who, however, wouldn't hear a word upon the subject, and scolded violently if anyone dared to suggest it. If they had known the various tender passages which had been nipped in the bud, they would have had the immense satisfaction of saying, I told you so. But Joe hated philandering, and wouldn't allow it, always having a joke or a smile ready at the least sign of impending danger. When Laurie first went to college, he fell in love about once a month. But these small flames were as brief as ardent, did no damage, and much amused Joe, who took great interest in the alternations of hope, despair, and resignation, which were confided to her in their weekly conferences. But there came a time when Laurie ceased to worship at many shrines, hinted darkly at one all-absorbing passion, and indulged occasionally in Byronic fits of gloom. Then he avoided the tender subject altogether, wrote philosophical notes to Joe, turned studious, and gave out that he was going to dig, intending to graduate in a blaze of glory. This suited the young lady better than twilight confidences, tender pressures of the hand, and eloquent glances of the eye. For with Joe, brain developed earlier than heart, and she preferred imaginary heroes to real ones, because when tired of them, the former could be shut up in the tin kitchen till called for, and the latter were less manageable. Things were in this state when the grand discovery was made, and Joe watched Laurie that night as she had never done before. If she had not got the new idea into her head, she would have seen nothing unusual in the fact that Beth was very quiet and Laurie very kind to her. But having given the rein to her lively fancy, it galloped away with her at great pace, and common sense, being rather weakened by a long course of romance writing, did not come to the rescue. As usual, Beth lay on the sofa, and Laurie sat in a low chair close by, amusing her with all sorts of gossip, for she depended on her weekly spin, and he never disappointed her. But that evening, Joe fancied that Beth's eyes rested on the lively dark face beside her with peculiar pleasure and that she listened with intense interest to an account of some exciting cricket match, though the phrases caught off a tice, stumped off his ground, and the leg hit for three were as intelligible to her as Sanskrit. She also fancied, having set her heart upon seeing it, that she saw a certain increase of gentleness in Laurie's manner, that he dropped his voice now and then, laughed less than usual, was a little absent-minded, and settled the afghan over Beth's feet with an assiduity that was really almost tender. "'Who knows? Stranger things have happened,' thought Joe as she fussed about the room. "'She will make quite an angel of him, and he will make life delightfully easy and pleasant for the dear if they only love each other. I don't see how he can help it, and I do believe he would if the rest of us were out of the way.' As everyone was out of the way but herself, Joe began to feel that she ought to dispose of herself with all speed. But where should she go?' and burning to lay herself upon the shrine of sisterly devotion, she sat down to settle that point. Now, the old sofa was a regular patriarch of a sofa, long, broad, well-cushioned, and low, a trifle shabby, as well it might be, for the girls had slept and sprawled on it as babies, fished over the back, 
rode on the arms, and had menageries under it as children, and rested tired heads, dreamed dreams, and listened to tender talk on it as young women. They all loved it, for it was a family refuge, and one corner had always been Joe's favorite lounging place. Among the many pillows that adorned the venerable couch was one hard, round, covered with prickly horsehair, and furnished with a knobby button at each end. This repulsive pillow was her especial property, being used as a weapon of defense, a barricade, or a stern preventive of too much slumber. Laurie knew this pillow well, and had cause to regard it with deep aversion, having been unmercifully pummeled with it in former days when romping was allowed, and now frequently debarred by it from the seat he most coveted next to Joe in the sofa corner. If the sausage, as they called it, stood on end, it was a sign that he might approach and repose. But if it lay flat across the sofa, woe to man, woman, or child who dared disturb it. That evening Joe forgot to barricade her corner, and had not been in her seat five minutes before a massive form appeared beside her, and with both arms spread over the sofa back, both long legs stretched out before him, Laurie exclaimed with a sigh of satisfaction, "'Now this is filling at the price.' "'No slang,' snapped Joe, slamming down the pillow. But it was too late, there was no room for it, and coasting onto the floor it disappeared in a most mysterious manner. "'Come, Joe, don't be thorny.' After studying himself to a skeleton all the week, a fellow deserves petting, and ought to get it. Beth will pet you. I'm busy. No, she's not to be bothered with me, but you like that sort of thing. Unless you've suddenly lost your taste for it, have you? Do you hate your boy, and want to fire pillows at him? Anything more wheedlesome than that touching appeal was seldom heard, but Joe quenched her boy by turning on him with a stern query. How many bouquets have you sent Miss Randall this week? "'Not one, upon my word. She's engaged. Now then.' "'I'm glad of it. That's one of your foolish extravagances, "'sending flowers and things to girls for whom you don't care two pins,' "'continued Joe reprovingly. "'Sensible girls, for whom I do care, whole papers of pins, "'won't let me send them flowers and things. So what can I do? "'My feelings need a vent. "'Mother doesn't approve of flirting, even in fun. "'And you do flirt desperately, Teddy. "'I'd give anything if I could answer so to you.' As I can't, I'll merely say that I don't see any harm in that pleasant little game, if all parties understand that it's only play. Well, it does look pleasant, but I can't learn how it's done. I've tried, because one feels awkward in company not to do as everybody else is doing, but I don't seem to get on, said Joe, forgetting to play mentor. Take lessons of Amy, she has a regular talent for it. Yes, she does it very prettily, and never seems to go too far. I suppose it's natural to some people to please without trying and others to always say and do the wrong thing in the wrong place. I'm glad you can't flirt. It's really refreshing to see a sensible, straightforward girl who can be jolly and kind without making a fool of herself. Between ourselves, Joe, some of the girls I know really do go on at such a rate I'm ashamed of them. They don't mean any harm, I'm sure, but if they knew how we fellows talked about them afterward, they'd mend their ways, I fancy. They do the same, and as their tongues are the sharpest, you fellows get the worst of it, for you are as silly as they every bit. If you behaved properly, they would. But knowing you like their nonsense, they keep it up, and then you blame them. Much you know about it, ma'am, said Laurie in a superior tone. We don't like romps and flirts, though we may act as if we did sometimes. The pretty, modest girls are never talked about, except respectfully, among gentlemen. Bless your innocent soul, if you could be in my place for a month, you'd see things that would astonish you a trifle. Upon my word, when I see one of those harem-scarum girls, I always want to say with our friend Cock-Robin, out upon you, fie upon you, bold-faced jig. 
It was impossible to help laughing at the funny conflict between Laurie's chivalrous reluctance to speak ill of womankind and his very natural dislike of the unfeminine folly of which fashionable society showed him many samples. Joe knew that young Lawrence was regarded as a most eligible party by worldly mamas, and was much smiled upon by their daughters, and flattered enough by ladies of all ages to make a coxcomb of him. So she watched him rather jealously, fearing that he would be spoiled, and rejoiced more than she confessed to find that he still believed in modest girls. Returning suddenly to her admonitory tone, she said, dropping her voice, If you must have a vent, Teddy, go and devote yourself to one of the pretty modest girls whom you do respect, and not waste your time with the silly ones. You really advise it? And Laurie looked at her with an odd mixture of anxiety and merriment in his face. Yes, I do, but you'd better wait till you are through college, on the whole, and be fitting yourself for the place meantime. You're not half good enough for, well, whoever the modest girl may be. And Joe looked a little queer likewise, for a name had almost escaped her. That I'm not, acquiesced Laurie, with an expression of humility quite new to him, as he dropped his eyes and absently wound Joe's apron tassel round his finger. Mercy on us, this will never do, thought Joe, adding aloud, Go and sing to me. I'm dying for some music, and always like yours. I'd rather stay here, thank you. Well, you can't. There isn't room. Go and make yourself useful, since you are too big to be ornamental. I thought you hated to be tied to a woman's apron string, retorted Joe, quoting certain rebellious words of his own. Ah, that depends on who wears the apron. And Laurie gave an audacious tweak at the tassel. Are you going? demanded Joe, diving for the pillow. He fled at once, and the minute it was well, up with the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee, she slipped away to return no more till the young gentleman departed in high dudgeon. Joe lay long awake that night, and was just dropping off when the sound of a stifled sob made her fly to Beth's bedside with the anxious inquiry, What is it, dear? I thought you were asleep, sobbed Beth. Is it the old pain, my precious? No, it's a new one, but I can bear it. And Beth tried to check her tears. Tell me all about it, and let me cure it as I often did the other. You can't. There is no cure. There Beth's voice gave way, and clinging to her sister, she cried so despairingly that Joe was frightened. Where is it? Shall I call mother? No, no, don't call her. Don't tell her. I shall be better soon. Lie down here and pour my head. I'll be quiet and go to sleep. Indeed I will. Joe obeyed, but as her hand went softly to and fro across Beth's hot forehead and wet eyelids, her heart was very full and she longed to speak. But young as she was, Joe had learned that hearts, like flowers, cannot be rudely handled, but must open naturally. So though she believed she knew the cause of Beth's new pain, she only said in her tenderest tone, Does anything trouble you, dearie? Yes, Joe, after a long pause. Wouldn't it comfort you to tell me what it was? Not now, not yet. Then I won't ask, but remember, Bethy, that Mother and Joe are always glad to hear and help you if they can. I know it. I'll tell you by and by. Is the pain better now? Oh, yes, much better. You are so comfortable, Joe. Go to sleep, dear. I'll stay with you. So cheek to cheek they fell asleep, and on the morrow Beth seemed quite herself again, for at eighteen neither heads nor hearts ache long, and a loving word can medicine most ills. But Joe had made up her mind, and after pondering over a project for some days, she confided it to her mother. You asked me the other day what my wishes were. I'll tell you one of them, Marmy, she began as they sat alone together. I want to go away somewhere this winter for a change. Why, Joe, 
and her mother looked up quickly as if the words suggested a double meaning. With her eyes on her work, Joe answered soberly, I want something new. I feel restless and anxious to be seeing, doing, and learning more than I am. I brood too much over my own affairs and need stirring up, so as I can be spared this winter, I'd like to hop a little way and try my wings. Where will you hop? To New York. I had a bright idea yesterday, and this is it. You know Mrs. Kirk wrote to you for some respectable young person to teach her children, and so it's rather hard to find just the thing, but I think I should suit if I tried. My dear, go out to service in that great boarding house? And Mrs. March looked surprised, but not displeased. It's not exactly going out to service, for Mrs. Kirk is your friend, the kindest soul that ever lived, and would make things pleasant for me, I know. Her family is separate from the rest, and no one knows me there. Don't care if they do. It's honest work, and I'm not ashamed of it. Nor I. But your writing? All the better for the change. I shall see and hear new things, get new ideas, and even if I haven't much time there, I shall bring home quantities of material for my rubbish. I have no doubt of it. But are these your only reasons for this sudden fancy? No, mother. May I know the others? Joe looked up, and Joe looked down, and then said slowly with sudden color in her cheeks, It may be vain and wrong to say it, but I'm afraid Laurie is getting too fond of me. Then you don't care for him in the way it is evident he begins to care for you? And Mrs. March looked anxious as she put the question. Mercy, no. I love the dear boy, as I always have, and I'm immensely proud of him. But as for anything more, it's out of the question. I'm glad of that, Joe. Why, please? Because, dear, I don't think you are suited to one another. As friends, you are very happy, and your frequent quarrels soon blow over, but I fear you would both rebel if you were mated for life. You are too much alike and too fond of freedom— not to mention hot tempers and strong wills, to get on happily together, in a relation which needs infinite patience and forbearance, as well as love. That's just the feeling I had, though I couldn't express it. I'm glad you think he is only beginning to care for me. It would trouble me sadly to make him unhappy, for I couldn't fall in love with the dear old fellow merely out of gratitude, could I? You are sure of his feeling for you? The color deepened in Joe's cheeks as she answered with the look of mingled pleasure, pride, and pain which young girls wear when speaking of first lovers. I am afraid it is so, mother. He hasn't said anything, but he looks a great deal. I think I had better go away before it comes to anything. I agree with you, and if it can be managed, you shall go. Joe looked relieved, and after a pause said, smiling, How Mrs. Moffat would wonder at your want of management if she knew, and how she will rejoice that Annie may still hope. Ah, Joe, mothers may differ in their management, but the hope is the same in all, the desire to see their children happy. Meg is so, and I am content with her success. You I leave to enjoy your liberty till you tire of it, for only then will you find that there is something sweeter. Amy is my chief care now, but her good sense will help her. For Beth I indulge no hopes except that she may be well. By the way, she seems brighter this last day or two. Have you spoken to her? Yes, she owned she had a trouble, and promised to tell me by and by. I said no more, for I think I know it. And Joe told her little story. Mrs. March shook her head, and did not take so romantic a view of the case, but looked grave, and repeated her opinion that for Laurie's sake Joe should go away for a time. Let us say nothing about it to him till the plan is settled, then I'll run away before he can collect his wits and be tragic. 
Beth must think I'm going to please myself, as I am, for I can't talk about Laurie to her. But she can pet and comfort him after I'm gone and so cure him of this romantic notion. He's been through so many little trials of the sort, he's used to it, and will soon get over his lovelornity. Joe spoke hopefully, but could not rid herself of the foreboding fear that this little trial would be harder than the others, and that Laurie would not get over his lovelornity as easily as heretofore. The plan was talked over in a family council and agreed upon, for Mrs. Kirk gladly accepted Joe and promised to make a pleasant home for her. The teaching would render her independent, and such leisure as she got might be made profitable by writing, while the new scenes and society would be both useful and agreeable. Joe liked the prospect and was eager to be gone, for the home nest was growing too narrow for her restless nature and adventurous spirit. When all was settled, with fear and trembling, she told Laurie, but to her surprise he took it very quietly. He had been graver than usual of late, but very pleasant, and when jokingly accused of turning over a new leaf, he answered soberly, So I am, and I mean this one shall stay turned. Joe was very much relieved that one of his virtuous fits should come on just then, and made her preparations with a lightened heart, for Beth seemed more cheerful, and hoped she was doing the best for all. One thing I leave in your special care, she said the night before she left. You mean your papers? asked Beth. No, my boy. Be very good to him, won't you? Of course I will, but I can't fill your place, and he'll miss you sadly. It won't hurt him, so remember I leave him in your charge to plague, pet, and keep in order. I'll do my best for your sake, promised Beth, wondering why Joe looked at her so queerly. When Laurie said goodbye, he whispered significantly, It won't do a bit of good, Joe. My eye is on you. So mind what you do, or I'll come and bring you home. End of chapter 32 there has been a, an enormous amount of speculation about what is up with Louis, Louise May Alcott, Joe, and Lori. Here we are. We're, the girls are aging. They're getting older. <laughs> That's what aging means, Heather. They're getting older, and, of course, they're all starting to find people. You have Meg, who is happily married and has her children. You have Amy, who's definitely looking at matches and trying to be smart about this. And Alcott doesn't seem to be condemning her any longer for being um, interested in not living in poverty. She's, she seems to have taken that and turned it outwards a bit. So she does, she does seem to think about ways that she could help her own family by being one member of the family who's not living in poverty or middle-class poverty. And then there's Joe and Beth. <clears throat> Obviously, Beth is still not in great shape. But then there's this Joe-Laurie thing. Some people speculate that Alcott purposefully created Joe and Laurie a, a, an otherwise perfect couple. I mean, they, they are such good matches for each other in so many ways, but that she, she may have created this couple specifically to not get them together so that she could, in a, kind of a backhanded, under-the-table way, prove that women didn't have to be married to be fulfilled. It's possible. It's hard, it's hard to know because the, the times have changed so much, and... Uh, it certainly flew against convention at the time. 
it even flies against convention now. This has been a, an enormous topic of conversation. Why aren't the two of them getting together? Well, you're going to have to just keep listening. But Alcott definitely did this on purpose. As we can see, she hasn't done any of this stuff by accident so far. So it's something to keep watching. The Joe Laurie uh, and now Joe Laurie Beth triangle uh, is, is going to continue to be fascinating through the rest of the, the story. And this chapter was the, the setup to what follows after. And, uh, and I love it. I do. I do. I love. I love Joe and Lori. Everybody does. Anyway, um, I have a lot I have to do, and it's been a short episode, and I'm sorry for that. I At first I thought maybe I could fit in two chapters, but I'm just not going to, because the next chapter is about as long as the last one. So I'm going to call it a day and post this on the web. It is already late in the week, and uh, I will hopefully be podcasting again on Thursday this week, like I normally do, and um, get some good stuff out to you, and move on with the next chapter, which is one of my favorites. I have a number that I really love, and I've, I've already told you about the ones that we've already listened to. We're coming up on another one of mine, and I'm very happy. So, we will leave Joe and Amy and Lori and Beth and Marmy and everybody for a little bit and uh, go on with the rest of our week. I hope this has found you well. It has certainly been a good week for me. Many, 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 too many thanks again to Don for helping me out when uh, things were tight and times were tough. And thank you again to Heidi in San Francisco for offering her time and her knowledge of the area and her generous, wonderful spirit. I had such a good time. It is it is so nice to finally meet people who I've been corresponding with for so long, only to find out that you are exactly who I thought you were, and just as wonderful, if not more so. It's, um, it's a real pleasure and a real treat. You guys are great. Have a good week. I'll talk to you soon. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlet, please go to Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and thegoldengatefiberinstitute.org. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, blogspot, B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T or at craftlit.libsyn.com. Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And don't forget, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.